You're listening to the Resurgent ATL Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. So I think I am just going to kind of deliver a motherly kind of mom type message this morning. But I want to start us out by just even asking the question, how many of us often have to learn things the hard way? Never, right? I was not going to make you raise your hands, you know. But you know, when we learn things the hard way, it always costs us something. And you know, we have two sons, and our youngest son, it doesn't matter what stage of life he was in, it seemed like he always had to learn things the hard way. And you know, as a mother, it just kills you because you want to save your children from pain. And every time he had to learn the hard way, it would cost him something. And there's just a little example that we have. I think he was probably about three years old. We went to a campground facility, and there was a burning red furnace on the wall of the restroom. And, um, you know, he goes over there. He's intrigued by it, and he walks right up to it. And his daddy warns him, don't touch that, son. It's going to burn you. It's going to hurt you. And, of course, he looks at his daddy, and he sticks out his finger, and he gets a little closer. You know, you've been you moms, you moms and grandmas. And uh, he, he warned him again. He said, son, I'm telling you, it is going to burn you. Do not touch it. He looked at his daddy, looked at the furnace, got a little closer. You know, and you know what happened? He warned him again, and you guessed it. He touched the red coil on the burning red furnace. But I can guarantee you, he never touched a furnace again. (laughs) And I can hope that he learned some things about obedience in that lesson. However, because he had to learn the hard way, it cost him something. He got burned. Right? And this child also seemed to be the one that would throw the temper tantrums on the store, you know. And you young moms know how wonderful that feels. <laughs> and, you know, one time, and, you know, you kind of, you walk, you do the planned ignoring, right? You're like, I'm going to walk in your six, seven, eight, all's over. He's still screaming. We're like, that's not working, you know. <laughs> but one time we were in the store and another person's child was throwing a temper tantrum. And I looked down at Tristan, and he looked kind of shocked, and I said, oh, just ignore it. You know, we went on about our shopping, but we got out in the car, and he said, Mama, is that what I look like when I throw a temper tantrum? (laughs) And I was like, yes, there is hope for this child. You know, thank you, God, that he was able to learn through someone else's experience, right? And so, you know, that's really what I hope today, that, you know, as we read through Scripture that we are able to learn through other people's experiences. Because today, like I said, I feel like this is kind of a mother of the house message because I want to talk to us about our response to pain. And, you know, we've all experienced so many different types of pain in our life, if it's just troubles or loss or just disappointment. Even, you know, even going through process is pain. And um, I wrote this message actually back in May when I was writing my Mother's Day message. And I don't know if any of you were here then, but I was studying, studying the book of Ruth because I wanted to deliver this Mother's Day message around Ruth and, you know, how God redeems it all because, you know, I love the story of redemption. And I just kept getting caught up in Elimelech, which is her, her father-in-law. I kept getting caught up in his life and his response to pain and what it cost him. So in order to get to today's message, which is kind of part two of that. I want to recap that message for just a moment. 
In order to do so, I'm going to start out by reading the first chapter of the book of Ruth. And I put it up here for you, but I'd love to hear those papers turn into, come on, give me some fake paper. <laughs> Get your app out, you know, make me feel like you're reading the word. But anyway, so the first chapter, it just starts out with, in the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons. The, na- the man's name was Elimelech and his wife was Naomi. And scoot down a little, it says, and when they reached Moab, they settled there. But then it says, then Elimelech died and Naomi and his, uh, was left with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpah and the other named Ruth. But about 10 years later, both of them died. And this left Naomi without her two sons or without her husband. Fast forward a little bit. We're seeing that Naomi, she's living in Moab. And she hears, or she, um, yeah, she hears that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah, the place that she had left, by giving them good crops again. So Naomi and her daughter-in-laws got ready to leave Moab to return to her homeland. And then you know the story where Naomi really starts talking to her two daughter-in-laws and tries to convince them to go ahead and go back to Moab to their original people. She's like, look, I'm never going to have any more sons. And even if I did, are you going to wait around for them to grow up again? And so they've lost their inheritance. So she's like, just stay among your people. And the story goes on that um, Orpah decided to go back to her people to Moab, but Ruth refused to leave Naomi's side. I want to pick up, I think, with um, verse 14. And it says, And again they wept together, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Look, Naomi said to her, Your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. But Ruth replied, Do not ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And wherever you die, I will die. And there there I will be buried. It says, May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. So the two of them continued on their journey. And when they came to Bethlehem, the entire town was excited by their arrival. Is it really Naomi? The woman asked. She says, don't call me Naomi, she responded. Instead, call me Mara, for the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me? So Naomi returned to Moab, accompanied by her daughter-in-law Ruth, the young Moabite woman, They arrived in Bethlehem in late spring at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, I know there was a lot to read, but I felt like we needed a refresher course in the story of Ruth because a lot of us have kind of forgotten what happens. But in, in order to kind of recap part one of this message back in May when I wrote this, we need to look at um, Elimelech's response to pain because, see, he's living, he's a citizen um, within in Bethlehem, which is a small village, which is within the boundaries of God's anointed inheritance for his people. But because of his fear and pain and suffering, because of this national drought, 
He moves from Israel, which is interpreted to mean promise of abundant life, and he moves to Moab, which is darkness and despair. So if you read it like this, he moves his family from Israel. He moves them from the promise of abundant life to darkness and despair in order to save them from pain. And, you know, I believe he had good intentions, I just, but because he's probably thinking, I need to save my family from this tragedy, right? But he probably just didn't want to go through process. I mean, it really looks like he didn't want to go through the pain. And, you know, there's so many of us, when we experience pain or if we experience process, we are so tempted to step outside of the circle of God's promise in order to find solutions on our own terms. Anybody guilty? (laughs) And you know what usually ends up happening is that we find emptiness and heartache instead of relief and fulfillment. I want to look at Proverbs 14. This is verse 12. It says, There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And, you know, not only did Elimelech move out of Bethlehem, which is the house of bread, by the way, but he leaves the borders of this promised land and he goes looking for a new life. He goes looking for solutions, something better. He goes looking actually for fulfillment outside the boundaries of God's provision. And it cost him his life and it cost him his family's inheritance. And um, I just kind of want to look at this scripture, John 10, 10. We all know it, but I think it kind of applies really well here. I love this scripture. But it just says a thief has only one thing in mind. He wants to steal, slaughter, destroy. But I have come to give you everything in abundance, more than you expect, life in its fullness until you overflow. Isn't that good? All right. Well, let me get a little drink here. (laughs) I'm reading a new book. It's called Leadership Pain. It's by a guy named... (laughs) Yeah, I'm really encouraging, right? It's by a guy named um, Samuel... Chand, has anybody heard of this? Okay, see a few people. And in his book, he says that the way, and I think I put this on a slide, it says the way we interpret and respond to pain throws us into a gear that propels us forward or backward. It shifts you one way or the other. We all have a default mode of dealing with pain, fight, flight, freeze, It's the way we've dealt with conflict, threats, fears, loss, all of our lives, right? But our default mode might not be a productive, healthy way to handle pain any longer. So how many of you, (laughs) when you experience pain, do you run? Do you fight? Do you freeze? I mean, we all have something that we do, right? You know, I've been in church all my life, probably since I think my parents got saved when I was about four years old. So growing up, We have been in many different churches. And then even when Chris and I got married, we've been in several different churches, and we've also been on leadership teams in many different churches because we started, like, in our early 20s, and we're not there anymore. So quite a few years, right? But it seems like the default mode, (laughs) anytime in a church setting, even as a child, you could see this, that anytime there was any conflict, or any um, disagreement or disappointment, that's a big one, any disappointment, people would generally just leave the church. 
And you know, when, when you're in the business world or in you know, your job setting, you don't see it as much, right? I mean, people still leave work and jobs, but in 32 years of teaching, I can think of one, for instance, where a teacher got so angry, he got up from his desk, walked out the door, and never came back. One. <laughs> and I think it's because we have a clear understanding that our provision is tied to it. Okay? But we forget we're in the church, and we also forget that we're surrounded by people who have experienced a lot of pain, people who maybe are in triage, right? And we forget that our provision is tied to it because Hebrews 10.25 says, don't forsake the assembly. All right, because what happens when we assemble together? We assemble as the body of Christ and we stir each other up in love and we encourage one another in our faith. Our provision is tied to it. So another reason is I think, to be honest, I think nobody ever wants to tell you that pain is inevitable, right? And <laughs> that it's really what we do with it that matters. That's where the difference comes in. And um, excuse me for a minute. Having some allergies. So <laughs> anyway, I want to talk about this. Um, I'm taking this prophetic activation class, and a lot of you are taking it too. It's with Dub. And he's teaching us, you know, how to uh, minister in the prophetic. And he uses the word triggers, where something triggers us, right? It might be, you look familiar to me. Or... He's highlighting a song title to me, right? But it's a trigger. It triggers this. He highlights something in nature. And I use it as a trigger to make me say, oh, Holy Spirit, what is it you're saying about this person? What is it you are asking me to communicate to this person on your behalf? And I love that kind of thinking of these as triggers, it has really allowed me to change that negative connotation that I've always put on the word triggers because I always use it as, oh, that triggered me. And that's why I just bit your head off. You know, that just triggered my pain. And that's why I just acted and threw a temper tantrum. Oh, that just triggered me. And that's why I gave myself permission to act up. And... It really helped me that whenever I experience and allow myself the opportunity to say, oh, that triggered me, I have lately gone, oh, Holy Spirit, what do you want to say to me in this moment? What do you want to say to me about this pain that I'm obviously holding on to? What do you, what do you want me to prophesy over myself in this moment? When I'm triggered, and I appreciate that, so I'm really, I'm working on that, so <laughs> I'm going to challenge y'all to work on it, too, so. but anyway, you know, I think it wasn't until we were attending Bethel Atlanta that we started coming to this understanding that if pain can happen here in an environment that prides itself on honor, uh, what is the word of boundaries, healthy boundaries, keeping your love on, that if it can happen there, it can happen anywhere, Right? And um, we even have this story where we were at Bethel Atlanta and we got disappointed and we thought we wanted to leave. 
Now, I want to kind of take you back because we've been here five years. We were there 10 or 12 years. So maybe this is like 15 years ago. So give me some grace. <laughs> we were just coming into this environment. But we got disappointed and we thought that we might want to leave. But we did have a little bit more wisdom at this stage of our life. And we did have a little bit more, a little, a little. <laughs> we had a little bit more um, experience and wiser to know, you know, just because we're disappointed, leaving isn't going to solve our problem. It's not going to take away the pain. It's not going to take away our disappointment. It's gonna, not going to bring us fulfillment in our life. And um, so we had to kind of do some things. And if you'll put this slide up here, this is what I talked about in May, the one that just says there's a list of bullet points. Yeah, this one. You know, when we're, we're facing that moment, where we're like, I'm not feeling fulfilled and I just want to flee, okay? This is some things that we can do. We can remember who we are, right? Our identity in Christ. We can focus on what God is doing, not what on the enemy's doing, not what on stupid people are doing. <laughs> I mean, come on. I'm just being kind of trying to be funny, you know. But, and we can ask for wisdom, we can trust God to fulfill his promises because that's usually what's happening, right? Oh, my God, my promise might not happen. We can consider it all joy. I mean, come on. When we're suffering from pain, do we ever consider it all joy? And then what about this light? Let your light shine, right? Because whenever we're disappointed, we generally do the opposite of let your light shine. And then what about just hunger for his presence? That can bring a whole lot of fulfillment. That can shift the atmosphere for us. And I can guarantee you every single one of these kind of came into play as we are going through this process and this season. And Chris has this story. You know, he says he was so disappointed. He's going to go to Reading, and he's just going to get alone with God, and he goes out to see nature. And he's sitting at the base of this mountain, and he's crying out to God, and he's saying, how in the world did I get here? I mean, I had hoped that this would happen. I had hoped that this would happen. I had hoped this. I had hoped that. And now I'm disappointed. I'm disgruntled. I'm unfulfilled. And I just want to leave. And he said, God spoke to him crystal clear and said, you can leave. And he said, I can. <laughs> he said, yeah, but it won't be my best for you. And Chris said, hit him right there. He picked himself up by the bootstraps, so to speak, a little Texas saying there. And he came home. He changed his attitude. He rallied the other leaders around him who were also disgruntled. And he said, we got to do better. We got to change this because people are looking to us as leaders for our response. And he said, we got to support leadership even when we don't understand. And it made an impact. It made a change in what was going on at that time in that atmosphere. And then eight, maybe six years later, when we did leave Bethel Atlanta, it wasn't because we were mad or unfulfilled or disgruntled, but it was because we had a word from the Lord and we had a purpose that we wanted to pursue so, you know, maybe we need a new default of our automatic response to pain. Our response to pain needs to change. And this is a slide also. This is the same book. Samuel Chan says that, that change only happens 
when our level of desire or actually uh, desperation rises above the level of our fears. And I thought that was some good food for thought. And you know, Paul understood pain, didn't he? And he talks about when he had the thorn in his flesh in, I think this is 2 Corinthians. And what does God do? He says, take away my pain. Remove my pain from me. And what does God do? Does he take it away? Oh, no. He says, my grace is sufficient. Oh, man, I've been trying to do that lately. I'm like, God, just take away my pain. I can hear him whisper, Terry, my grace is sufficient. It's for my power is made perfect in weakness. And, you know, Paul, he understood that. That reason was good enough for him, and he let it renew a sense of gratitude for the pain, which is hard to imagine, and, and the suffering. And here's what he wrote, and I'll put this up here. It says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest upon me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. And when I am weak, then I am strong. Isn't that good? That's encouraging. All right. Well, I want to get back over to the story in Ruth real quick. And this is um, really still the first chapter, but verse 6. Now, Naomi is in Moab still. And she hears, it says in chapter 6, it says, She heard that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. And I'm thinking, she's having this moment of realization that not only has she and her family missed out on the provision of God, but they've also missed out on the visitation of God. And I think she's sitting in Moab, and she's probably asking her these, herself or God these questions. How in the world did I get in this place? I had hoped that this would happen. I had hoped that that would happen. I had hoped this. I had hoped that, right? And now she finds herself in a foreign land, widowed. She's lost her sons. She's lost her family's inheritance. Now she's realizing she missed out on the provision as well as the visitation of God. I mean, this is a new level of pain. Would you agree? And what I love about Naomi is her response is different. And you can put the slide up there. She loads up her belongings and she turns her face to Israel, to her promise. And it says she fought, I just said fight here. She fought to hold on to the promises of God over her life by living within her inheritance. She stepped back into that circle of God's promise for her life. She said, I don't need to live in darkness and despair anymore. And she said, I'm headed home. And um, let's see, I think that was it on that. That's a good response though, right? <laughs> now, here's something that we need to note down here. I said she had to change. Because Naomi and her husband left in search for something better outside of God's promise. So in order to return was going to take her yielding some areas of her life. It was going to require something of her. It was going to require a new depth of her character. It was going to require a new commitment, a new commitment to God, a new commitment to his ways, a new commitment to obedience in her life. 
It was going to require her to make adjustments in her thoughts and her mindsets because she couldn't go back into his purpose for her life without something happening on the inside of her. Isn't that good? And you know, <laughs> repentance just means to change your mind. It just means change your direction. You're going down one road, you stop, you turn, and you head down another road, right? And if you're headed down a road of self-pity or victim mentality or depression or shame or disappointment or unreal expectations, unforgiveness, you need to change your mindset and head down another road. All right, let's look at Romans Romans 2, 4. It says, don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? <laughs> Can you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? So yes, the kindness of God is what leads us to repentance. And he is kind. And I put this down at the bottom, but he knows there is no way for me to get from point A to point B in his purpose apart from something happening on the inside of me. You know, Cody spoke a message, I don't know how many weeks ago, three, four, five weeks ago, and his message was on keep saying yes. And I loved that. I just keep telling that to myself, keep saying yes, keep saying yes. But he talked about these mentors in his life, these leaders in his life, who when they experienced disappointment after disappointment after disappointment, their response was to just turn their back on God, blame God, basically, and even some of them denounced Christ. And you know, Naomi, she does not do that. Instead, she looks inward at areas of her life that needed to be yielded to him. And you know what? The truth is, God was about to open up the floodgates of blessings over her life. He was about to redeem um, the inheritance that had been lost. And I think, um, if you think about it, he'd already blessed her because it says she didn't return empty-handed, but she returned with Ruth. And in chapter 4, verse 15, it says, Ruth was better to her than seven sons. So, sorry, Cody and Tristan. <laughs> it says in the Bible that a daughter-in-law is better than seven sons. <laughs> just teasing. Just picking on you a little bit. All right. But you know what? Even though Naomi had lost everything, her inheritance was going to be restored through the obedience of her daughter-in-law. And the best thing about Naomi is that she returned to the place of blessing. And I want to look at something because, you know what, Naomi, if you think about it, she had every opportunity to sit in Moab, which is darkness and despair. And she had every opportunity to, to do what I call form a wound licking club, where she could just sit around licking her wounds and crying out, woe is me, and gathering those people that we tend to gather that allow us to sit in our pain, justify our offense, stroke our egos, right? And literally just allow us to water, waller in self-pity. I don't know if I said that right. But anyway, because I want to look at something. If you look at the very end of that chapter, you're probably thinking, why did she read that earlier? Because I wanted you to see this. She's tempted. 
she starts saying it. Oh, just call me bitter. <laughs> she's like, don't call me Naomi, call me bitter. I mean, it sounds like she's starting to feel sorry for herself a little bit. And then she even says, why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer? I mean, God didn't move her out of his promise to Moab. And, um, you know, it just kind of goes on. She says, the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me. So she's tempted. She kind of goes there for a minute. But what I love so much about the story of Naomi is that she remembers to be grateful for everything that she does have. She remembers to fight for that promise. And she remembers to continue to get her hopes up. And because of it, not only does she not come home empty-handed, but she arrives during the barley harvest. And that's good. So she's right back. She gets to step right back into the appointed inheritance of God's people. That's good. That's good news for us. <laughs> All right, I want to look real quickly at Orpah. I hope I'm saying her name right, but I always want to say Oprah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it just comes there. But, you know, Orpah, and I think I'm sorry for this one, um, she really just says, hey, I'm going to freeze, is what I kind of called this one, because she just stays put. She decides, I'm going to just stay put here in Moab in my darkness and despair because it's comfortable. It's what I know, but more importantly, it's not going to require anything of me. And this book, again, on leadership pain, and I have a slide for this one too, um, Another quote that I wanted to give you out of that book, it says, pain is a watershed. It can cause us to shrink back into a hole and hope it goes away. Or it can galvanize new hopes, new plans, new passions to learn the lessons I, that it can teach us. Facing pain may require more courage than we've ever had in our lives. Many points in our lives, we will reach the threshold of pain and think, I've had it. That's all I can take. Get me out of here. <laughs> and you know, the truth is, it doesn't go away when we run. It doesn't go away when we hide or sulk and sit in our despair. And, Mo and Oprah, Orpah, <laughs> she chose Moab. She chose darkness and despair because it was recognizable. It was a path well-traveled. And, if she, and she chose to hide from process and from pain because it would require something of her. It might require her to change. It might require her to have a new level of commitment. It might require her some discomfort. It might even require her to support a leader that she, even when she doesn't understand. It might require her to trust again. It might require her to take some risks. It might require her to push through pain because hiding and sulking in our pain doesn't require very much. It doesn't require much discipline from us. It doesn't require much sacrifice from us, and it sure doesn't require much faith. And the way I found this book, Leadership Pain, you should all read it. <laughs> Because I was listening to a podcast by, and he was being interviewed. His name's Samuel Chan. Again, and he's speaking to all of these pastors. And he's telling them, quit being surprised about pain. Yeah. He said, Jesus went through it all, and he never promised you a life without pain. 
And, you know, maybe you, that doesn't really resonate with you because you're like, well, I'm not in any kind of leadership or blah, blah, blah. But you've had pain in your business, pain in your workplace. You've had pain, that trendy little phrase we love so much, church hurt. Come on, we've had pain in relationships. We've had pain with these huge disappointments in our life. We've had the pain of grieving a dream that we never saw fulfilled. And what do we do? We put up these walls because we don't want to trust again. And then we use it as, as an excuse to do nothing. We use it as an excuse to not go back to church. We use it as an excuse to not connect with people, to isolate ourselves. That's healthy, right? We use it as an excuse to not create deep friendships and new relationships. And as I was listening to him at the very end of his message, he said, just get over it. And I'm thinking, oh, Samuel, that's so hard. It's hard to just get over it. But I started, when I started complaining about pain after I heard this message, I started hearing Samuel's voice in my head, just get over it. And I was like, okay, Terry, you can do this. And I started encouraging myself, you can pull yourself through this. You can get over it. And... Um, in the 90s, there was a saying that everybody, if, if any of you were in the 90s, please tell me you remember this. There's a phrase, um, get a life. Does anybody remember that? We used to say that all the time. Somebody, thank you. I'm so glad. You're not the only person. Okay, you know, people would tell something like, oh, my goodness, get a life. Just get a life. And we said it so much. And Chris and I were youth pastors in the 90s. And we even had a youth group, if you do remember this. It was called Get a Life Youth Ministries. <laughs> And, you know, there should be, there are certain pains in our life that we should be able to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and remind ourselves, just get over it. Get a life. Okay? <laughs> Y'all got really quiet. Like, gosh, to me, that's so harsh. I mean, come on. Here's an example. It's a kind of silly example. But um, do you remember a few years ago when um, Donald Trump was elected president? There was this college campus where these young adults were so distraught that their candidate did not get elected that they had to bring in emotional support puppies to get them <laughs> over their pain. I saw that in the news and I literally said, oh my gosh, get a life. You know, just get over it. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps. If you don't like it, do something about it. And sadly, it's kind of becoming more and more of the norm. All right, we'll get off on that. <laughs> I got a little fired up there. <laughs> but I want to go back to Mo. <laughs> get a life. <laughs> ah. Oh, gosh. Okay. Well, I hope everybody's still loves me after today. <laughs> we're going to start telling each other to get a life, okay? <laughs> but we're going to know the secret meaning, like it's positive. Okay. All right, let's get back to Moab just real quick. I want to point out one more thing about Moab. Y'all are, are making me laugh today, so thank y'all for joining us. It's making me feel comforted. But I want to get back to Moab because it wasn't just that it was familiar and comfortable, but there was the potential of marriage proposals there. And see, if she moved to Judah, she was going to be a foreigner in the land, and she may never marry again. It was a possibility. It was going to require a new level of faith for her to move. And so... Um, what she does is she goes back to what she knew, 
And I read somewhere that she gave herself to many men. And I think that it had to be her trying to regain inheritance, regain provision on her own strength. And so what does she do? She turns to these old, her old ways, her old haunts in her life, old expectations, old relationships, old gods. And as a result of it, she never found refuge under the wings of the God of Israel like Ruth did. So she never tasted that sweet provision of the Lord from the land of promise. All right, will y'all give me a few more minutes to talk about Ruth? And it's going a little long, so I want to, and you can go ahead and put Ruth up there. Because we would be remiss if we did not talk about Ruth, because Ruth was a response of faith. Don't we want that to be our response? It says that she chose the difficult path. She chose a costly course of commitment. It was a journey of faith, and she was uncertain about the future. Now, remember, she literally said, where you go, I'll go. What you tell me to do, I'm going to do. Your people are going to be my people. Your God is going to be my God. I mean, it sounds like process. It sounds like she does hard things, doesn't it? And she sets out in faith, in this journey of faith, to, um, to Israel. And when she enters, she's amazed at the provision. She's amazed at the hope she experiences. She discovers this newness of living in God's best. And she gets um, this excitement of living out God's purpose for her life. And, you know, God doesn't just want her to live a life of fulfillment, but he wants to redeem it all. He wants to redeem everything that was lost. He wants to redeem that lost inheritance. And if you'll go ahead with this next slide, because in God's plan, death and loss will not have the final word. Right? What was lost was going to be redeemed. And so the rest of the book of Ruth is really about Boaz, who is this near relative who was willing to pay the price to redeem her, but it required something of her. It required a new kind of commitment, and this commitment from Ruth was one that would open the way for kingly purposes to be realized in her life because she had a response of faith. And I have a slide for this. Kingdom happens through people who heed the word and counsel of the Lord. And what I love about Ruth is she understood the assignment. Okay, how many people their voice went to TikTok? Anybody? TikTok, thank you. I was so afraid nobody would get it. Okay, TikTok or Reels, right? I understood the assignment. Come on, nobody. Somebody needs to create me a reel that said, Ruth understood the assignment, right? Chris is, Cody's looking mortified over here, so I'm a little nervous. Okay, it's going viral. Okay, I hope it doesn't mean anything bad, but okay, okay. It's like, whoo, shocked at your old mother. Yeah. Ruth understood the assignment. Okay. It's in there. <laughs> See, y'all are seeing a whole new side of your mother. Okay, anyway. So here, 
Skip that. She trusted wholly in the process that had to take place in order for her inheritance to be properly restored. And you know, one of those requirements, one of the steps she had to take, she had to sit at the feet of Boaz. Okay, and she had to follow every instruction to the detail, even when she didn't understand. And she has to sit in all of these unanswered questions. Will he redeem me? Will he provide for me? Will these people begin to accept me as one of their own since I'm a foreigner in the land? And what do we do when we don't get our unanswered questions answered quick enough or when the pain gets too difficult or the process, I should say, gets too difficult, what do we do? We get up from the feet of Jesus, stumble around in the dark and try to solve it on our own strength. So again, kingdom happens through people who heed the word and the counsel of the Lord. And these are the people who find themselves experiencing a dimension of life, a, a fruitfulness beyond what anything they have ever known. And God brought Ruth back into his original intent for her life. He redeemed her inheritance. And better yet, he also gave her an heir. I think of that as someone to give her inheritance to. And I love that. I think that's so good. I don't want to point out one more thing. Y'all have been really patient, and I appreciate it. But I want to point out the contrast between Orpha and Ruth's response to pain as well as the fruitfulness of their lives. Because it says Orpa did eventually go on to get married, and she gave birth to four giants, one of whose name was Goliath. And Ruth went, on, went ahead, and she went on and got married, and she married Boaz, one who was able to redeem her, and she became the grandmother of David, the one who would cut off the head of Goliath, one who would become the king of Israel. And even better than that, one day in the future, Ruth's multi-time great-great-great-grandson would be born, Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. Ah, who would have dreamed it? Isn't that good? It gives me so much hope because she chose to respond in faith, stay committed, push through pain, keep saying yes, take risks, all of those things, do hard things. <laughs> and because of it, she was able to step out of the shadows of death and step into a future legacy beyond imagination. So... I would ask you this morning, are you willing to make a new kind of commitment even in the face of pain? All right, go ahead and close your eyes. Bow your head for just a moment, and I want you to consider, do you need to make a new kind of commitment? Do you need to change your default response to pain? Do you need to encourage yourself to lean into process? Do you need to continue saying yes? And maybe some of you need to just kind of 
Gently pat yourself on the cheek and say, all right, encouraging myself, I can do this. I can get over this. I can get a life. <laughs> so maybe you just need encouragement this morning. And we are going to have a prayer team up here at the end of the service. And we do encourage you to come up and get prayer for anything that you need. But I want you to take a moment at your seat. And I want you to ask God for insight about your response to different types of pain. And while you're listening for him, go ahead and stand up. Kind of stretch your legs out a little bit. Because I want to leave you with some encouragement. And um, I put these scriptures up there, um, Scott. One of my favorite quotes is Corey Ten Boom. And she says to never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a, new, to a known God. And I think we need to keep that before us. But I want to read a few scriptures of encouragement this morning. Proverbs 3, and you can look at it if you want to. It says, trust in the Lord completely and do not rely on your own opinions. With all your heart, rely on him to guide you and he will lead you in every decision you make. Become intimate with him in whatever you do, and he will lead you wherever you go. The next slide, Psalm 37. It says, make God the utmost delight and pleasure of your life, and he will provide you what you desire the most. Give God the right to direct your life, and as you trust him along the way, you'll find he pulled it off perfectly. Isn't that good? And then I also want one more thing. I want to declare this prophetic word over you that I read this week by Laura. I think her name is Laura Vosser. So I'm speaking this over you. Read it and, and receive it as I read it. It says, A foreboding spirit of fear has been attacking many of you about the future. But the Lord is decreeing, Get your hopes up, for there are mighty and wonderful surprises upon you. This is a season of divine suddenlies. You are in your turnaround place. Watch many things shift and change overnight. My plans for you are good and to prosper you and not harm you, but to give you a hope and a future. I am doing what only I can do. Fear has tried to squash and cage you, but my power will astonish you. Do you receive that this morning? All right. <laughs> I just want to say a prayer over us at the end of my prayer. If the prayer team would go ahead and come on up. Um, please feel free to come down. Even if you just need, if you need prayer for something different than what was shared this morning, you need healing in your life or have any um, prayer requests, we want to pray over you. But Father, we just come before you this morning and we just Say that when we experience unfulfillment or disappointment or heartache in our lives, Father, we would ask that you would remove fear and doubt. And Lord, that you'd help us not just focus on what other people are doing or what the enemy is doing, but that we would focus on you and your glorious nature within us. That, Father, you'd give us faith for all that you've called us to. That, Jesus, according to your word, we would be committed to sit at your feet because we know that you are our redeemer.